What's up everybody? In our triumphant return this week, we take a look at the fall and rise of pro wrestling in the 90s and look at the worst debut in pro wrestling history. That and a whole lot more is to come because maybe he fell on his ass. He did fall flat on his ass. Welcome to the show. You know, the funny thing about the Shockmaster is I'm recording this like a week or so before I release it, and we just had Tardis O'Neill in the greatest Royal Rumble ever. Just, oh my word, that was worse. Uh, if somebody could put a video of Titus falling through the ring and the Shockmaster falling through the thing, oh yeah, that would be fantastic. But anyway, guys, welcome. It has been fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time to go about your day listening to us. Like I said, we've got a whole lot to come, and I just wanted to get off my chest really just one or two things before we dove into you know the subject this week uh where have we been well as i mentioned uh we had a couple of tragedies in the family uh over a th- was it 42 days i think it was or a 42 day period uh we lost three very very uh important members of the family and you know it hit everybody for six it hit everybody hard and we just needed some time we needed to walk away we needed to just breathe and so on and so forth which is the reason why we haven't been around um we first of all lost uh my wife's uh grandmother's uh boyfriend um i don't i won't say grandfather-in-law or anything like that step-grandfather-in-law but um he was um he was a good guy uh we all loved him we all thought he was fantastic he's a real old-fashioned dude but in terms of you know how, how he treated people you know so on and so forth uh, we then lost uh, Sarah's grandmother, and that was a tragedy in itself. Um, I did the uh, extra episode four and mentioned what went on. And then two weeks ago, we lost uh, her stepmother to cancer. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of last season that we had uh, taken in some, some kids, and, you know, it was basically my wife's uh, little cousins. And, you know, it's been an absolute heartache period for the family. Um and it has affected the podcast because, you know, I know most people want to tune in and not care about listening to the, the whole personal life or anything like that. But we had to, you know, things were intertwined and we had to kind of, you know, we had to kind of step away. We we had no choice. I mean, it was, you know, that or try and do this with, with you know, a lot of things going on. Moving house for kids and um, trying to make sure everybody was, was not crying and funerals to plan and so on and so forth. So, you know, we just got way too busy. But we are back. We have a future. Now, let me explain. We're not going anywhere. Um, I've decided that this is like a week or so before I actually release a podcast. I'm actually going to start recording things in advance. That way, you know, I'm not called out. I have something to go, you know, when it's time. And the good thing about Podbean is, bang, you can, you know, you can set up a podcast to go in 3,000 years and it will send it up as long as they're still, you know, still around. Um, But doing it in advance means that, you know, I've got a little bit of time. If, you know, if I ever fall behind, like I was falling behind, you know, we're caught up. So um, I might be a, li- a week or so out of uh, out of date with some of my uh, information. But at the same time, you know, I think it's good for the future of the podcast that we keep going that way. Uh, and my own future, too, looks brighter than it did uh, in February. Um, not to say that, you know, my future wasn't bright. But um, as I mentioned before, I've been doing some uh, live audio sound work. And I've decided to go into that kind of business for myself. Uh, get some guys working with me. And, you know, we're going to go ahead and, and, and handle that. I've, you know, I'm, I really have enjoyed my work with the Holodex, which, you know, I've, I've been doing since the beginning of the year. Uh, great great bunch of lads and you know I, I look forward to doing more and more with them but at the same time you know i don't want to be reliant on them if that makes sense i want to be my own boss and and i love that and you know and we've had a lot of stuff going on at work but that's the thing i'm also looking for musicians too i have an idea to start a band and i have a concept for it. it doesn't want to be original but you know just just some things to keep me busy then we've got the podcast uh sarah's got a whole bunch of stuff going on too all the kids you know but the future's looking bright the future is looking bright for the podcast, the future is looking bright for future business prospects, and the future is looking bright for the Connolly family altogether. So, now that all that junk is out of the way, we're going to file that in the past, we're going to leave it there, and we're not going to mention it or bring it up again, because it's now done and there's nothing we can do about it. We are moving forward. Guys, we need your support. If you go to Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr, look up Because Maybe Pod. Uh, becausemaybepodcast.wordpress.com. We have some great blogs coming up this season. I've written a few, fair few with them, and yeah, it will be, you know, it, it's going to be fantastic. And if you're on YouTube, look up uh, Because Maybe Podcast. We're going to put more stuff on there as the year goes on. 
Now, do you have a YouTube channel? Do you have a podcast? Do you have a band, a performance? Do you have a product that you sell? Please get in touch with me, because maybe podcast at gmail.com. That way we can go ahead and plug you on the show. The only thing we ask is for a plug in return. We're not looking for money, we're not looking for anything, well, we just want some exposure. I know it's funny, you listen to all these artists and, and people like myself, and working for exposure is horrible if you're established. Right now, this is uh, a very, very, I don't want to say expensive hobby of mine, but, uh, you know, it's a very, very time-consuming hobby of mine, and if you get, I want it to be worth it, I want to grow my audience, so if you have a product that you'd like, let me know, shoot me an email, shoot me a direct message on any of those platforms, and I'll go ahead and get back with you, and we will be able to, you know, to, to share information, share products, but with all that in mind, we've got more to come, let's look at the rise, at the, excuse me, at the fall and rise of pro wrestling in the 90s, this week, we look at the fall and the doldrums that was early 90s professional wrestling in the United States. Scenes of the 90s. Alright gang, we are back. It's been a long time and we decided to make a start with a scene of the 90s. Kind of what we did last season, but you know what? This time we're actually going to move forward with it. Um, this week we are talking about professional wrestling in the 90s. Um, kind of an interesting subject when you think about it because, you know, I've said before and I'll say it again. Uh, professional wrestling is the best a child of sport and it's the best a child of entertainment. Uh, it's considered lowbrow. It's considered... It's considered obnoxious, and it's cons- it's considered a whole bunch of other things, but it didn't used to be like that. And in fact, it was the, the, the fall and rise in the 90s that kind of led everyone's perception of that, so to speak. Because um, for the longest time, uh, especially like from the 60s right through to the early 80s, people... <sighs> People kind of saw wrestling as legitimate. A lot of people knew that the outcomes were predetermined, uh, fake, scripted, whatever you want to call it, but they kind of bought into that, especially considering the performers, the wrestlers themselves, uh, the managers, the referees, so on and so forth. Everybody took it seriously and believed what they were doing. They treated it legitimately, so people were easy to buy into the legitimacy of it. Um, And that was kind of how it was organized. So what we're going to do this week, we're going to look at... Everything from 1990 to around about mid-1996. Now, that seems like a long way, and we are doing three parts, so we're covering more than half the... Yes, we're covering more than half the decade. Because the first ten years... Excuse me. The first five years, six years of the 90s, when it came to wrestling, was a very, very weird time, especially for fans and uh, performers alike. Uh, But before we start in the 90s, we have to take a look back as to where pro wrestling in the United States was coming from. So, like, in the 60s, I mentioned the 60s and the 70s earlier, um, basically put, all wrestling organizations were treated uh, legitimately by the media, were treated legitimately by the fans and the promoters and the wrestlers themselves. And they were organized by uh, an organization called the National Wrestling Alliance, or the NWA. And that was basically the governing body, kind of like the WBA in boxing, you know, so on and so forth. Um, they had one world champion and a bunch of tag champions, and they would send the world champion to territories to defend the titles. And again, there was uh, many, many divisions, regionalized, localized, national, international, continental, so on and so forth. Divisions, you know, tiers, uh, weight classes, you know, anything that you could think of in a legitimate combative sport, like USC these days, or, you know, boxing or kickboxing, you know, you have... Lightweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight, uh, Commonwealth champion, United States champion, North American champion, world champion, so on and so forth. The NWA was organized and structured like that. It was run by a committee, and, you know, they basically controlled the world title and let the regional territories control the rest of the stuff. And basically, the territory system was what professional wrestling was in the 70s and 80s. Um, basically, put a uh, uh, Promotion would only have a specific area of the country, and they would only promote their wrestlers in that area of the country. They wouldn't go to a different area of the country, and they would do talent swaps every now and then. So, for example, uh, the WWWF was in the Northeast, so that was basically New York, Philadelphia, um, New Jersey, Connecticut, New England area. Uh, They kind of focused on a cosmopolitan style who not cosmopolitan a more, uh, 
a style that, that that you see now in what the WWF became and WWE became, you know, more personality and uh, they had some legitimacy too. You had to be legitimate and have some personality, but it was slower paced and it was more showmanship, for lack of a better term. Uh, in Texas, you had uh, World Class, which was a different organization. Uh, the U- the UWF or Mid South Wrestling uh, in Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama. You had Georgia Championship Wrestling, wrestling from Florida. You had Stampede in Canada, and every one of these promotions only operated in a certain area of the country or in uh, Canada, and they only they operated under their own style. And like I said, they did do talent exchanges. So, for example, um, let's just say World Class had a guy, and Vince McMahon Sr., not not Jr., the one we know now, his dad, uh, called up and said, you know, I want um, I want your guy to come wrestle five or six of my shows this week. You do that, I'll give you a week of Andre. Yeah, Andre the Giant. So that's kind of, you know, how they, they, they went about doing things. And what happened was, just as cable TV was starting to expand, just as cable was starting to get into it, Vince McMahon Sr. sold his company to Vince McMahon Jr., or Vince McMahon as we know him now. And he saw the potential of cable TV, maybe not before everybody else, but certainly he started work on it before everyone else. And Vince Jr. started to go national, and he started promoting in other territories air territory uh and he went on a huge huge talent raid um he went for example the awa uh he took jesse ventura hulk hogan roddy piper sergeant slaughter bobby heenan and mean gene oakland that's a huge list of talent to lose from any level much less you know something trying to compete head to head with you if you you know i'm a big football fan i'm a big soccer fan for the for those listening in, in not in uk <laughs> and I like Arsenal, and it's like somebody bought, somebody, you know, raided us for Mkhitaryan, Ozil, Aubameyang, Ramsey, and Lacazette at the same time. So, you know, the AWA didn't last too much longer. They tried, but they, they, they kind of, you know, it, it kind of went south. Um, World Class tried to expand beyond the Dallas area, and they were successful initially, but when the bottom dropped out, it, you know, it was done. Um... The UWF by Bill Watts, originally Mid-South, they tried, but they started hemorrhaging money, so they merged with Jim Crockett Promotions. Jim Crockett Promotions itself had merged with a couple of other uh, territories, and so that became uh, what we would now know as WCW. Um, we had uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, the UWF, the Universal Wrestling Federation, uh, Florida Championship Wrestling, Mid-South, you know, all, all of that stuff. Bang. They kind of all merged together became WCW. And the rest of the, the territories were either, you know, shut down, bought out, or merged. And McMahon and Crockett basically picked up the pieces of talent. And there was some talent around in the 80s, don't get me wrong, but the, the territories just completely nearly dried up over like a three or four year period in the mid-80s. And what was happening in the mid-80s was the postal child for professional wrestling, Hulk Hogan. Uh, you know, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, and his many, many brothers, you know, that, that, that became what the norm was, and wrestling had the boom period in the 80s. So you had rock and roll wrestling with Hogan, Piper, Randy Savage, Ted DiBiase, Andre the Giant, you know, these huge, huge names. The NWA, they presented their product more legitimately, and you had the Rock and Roll Express, uh, the Midnight Express, Rick Flair, Arn Anderson, the Four Horsemen, uh, Dusty Rhodes, you know, uh, Sting, all these guys, and wrestling was 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 cool until it wasn't, and that's where our time comes in. So we're talking now. We're back to the nineties. We're back in more comfortable territory. So basically, put national organization there. WA used to run everything. There used to be territories where nobody would promote. Vince McMahon buys the company, buys WWF, goes national. Other companies merged to become national, and wrestling hits a boom period in the 80s. And Hulkamania went from running wild to running stale. Wrestling became cool again. You know, it, 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 it wrestling became uncool again, excuse me. You know, it was uncool to like wrestling in the early 90s. Um, it just seemed like... That's the best way to say this. It just seemed like, you know, there, there were more... There were bigger things coming. Uh, boxing was starting, you know, boxing was starting to take off as 
he, they were starting to get the um, the heavyweight scene in particular, the likes of Mike Tyson, Ben Holyfield, Riddick Bowl, Lennox Lewis, Frank Bruno, all these guys who were charismatic, badasses, and you know, legitimate, legitimate, legitimate fighters, and then you put it together with some steroided up dude screaming at your TV talking about rocket fuel and Hulkamania brother and take your prayers and save vitamins the fans just started not caring uh WWF I mean the biggest draw in the WWF was Hulk Hogan and the crowd are starting to turn on him you know they were sick and tired of the goody two-shoes act because they knew deep down that Hulk Hogan Terry Boiler, whatever you want to call him, that behind the scenes Hulk was an asshole. And they knew that Randy Savage was not the cool guy that he portrayed himself to be, and, and everything like that. And the guys who were cool, legitimately, they weren't charismatic. You know, I love Bret Hart. Bret Hart is a fantastic performer, but in the early 90s, he, he didn't have the charisma to carry anything off. And there were two incidences, three incidences, excuse me, where uh, Hulk Hogan was shocked by the reaction that he got. And the company was shocked by the reaction that he got. It was um, 1990. He had a rivalry with Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, uh, perhaps one of the most underrated wrestlers of his generation, definitely of all time. And uh, Henning hit a couple of moves on him, and the crowd went, yeah, you know, the, the crowd went, went wild for it. Uh, then the houses started coming down. Then Jake Roberts DDT'd Hulk Hogan. And the crowd cheered again. And at that point, Hogan started realizing there was something up, and he never actually went on to full feuds with those two guys. Uh, and then in the Royal Rumble 1992, he was eliminated by Sid, and Sid was cheered, and Hogan wasn't, even though the commentary team was trying to play up that Sid was this evil guy, but the crowd were cheering. And because... Now, the, their fans who are going to be listening are going to be seeing similarities now, um, which I'll get to in part three. Um, people were turning off the product, they were sick and tired of Hogan being forced down their throat, winning against all odds, and so on and so forth. But wrestling fans, kind of like music fans, don't really know what they want until they see something that they want. So, like, for example, um, if you saw Jinder Mahal and Daniel Bryan, you don't really, really want that match. But if you saw Braun Strowman and Samoa Joe, you didn't know you wanted that match until I just brought it up. So, <laughs> you know, that that's the thing. That's the thing about wrestling fans. Wrestling fans know what they want, but they only can identify what they want when they see it. At least, at least in my experience. So, you know, people are turned off by the product at this point. Um, so Vince McMahon tries to freshen up his product. He's brought in Sid, as I mentioned. Uh, he re-signs the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith, former tag team wrestler, Britain's greatest ever professional wrestler in the United States style. And uh, Lex Luger. Luger comes from WCW. He has a huge pedigree. Um, he's a former NWA world champion, back when that meant something. Um, he's a performance star. And they bring him on board on a bodybuilding contract to get around his wrestling non-compete. But WCW also decided that they were going to cash in on the down uncoolness of pro wrestling... And some of the guys who run the company had no idea what they were doing. And they had some ideas that were so bad. And they made it to air. And not only did they make it to air, but they were expected to, you know, they were expected to carry the promotion. I'll give you an example. There was a tag team that had, were covered in Jingle Bells. They had a ship's bell in the corner, and they were from Belleville, Illinois. They were called the Ding Dongs. They were the most ridiculed tag team of all time. Now, I feel sorry for the two guys under the masks, but they didn't even have names. They were Ding Dong number one, Ding Dong number two. How bad of a hand do you have to be dealt to not only be a Ding Dong, but to be Ding Dong number two? Not number one, number two. You know, um, then there were there was Robocop. Robocop made an appearance uh, to plug a movie. He actually. He, he didn't actually wrestle. He got involved in a match and got involved in an event. And then there were things like the Black Scorpion, which uh, was their way of trying to give uh, Sting a new opponent. And it went so bad that instead they went back to Ric Flair v. Sting again. Even then, even in the early 90s, Ric Flair v. Sting was like, oh, not again. You know, <laughs> that just carried on through the rest of their careers. Great matches, don't get me wrong. Um, but then there was stuff that didn't make the cut. Uh, there was the Hunchbacks. 
the idea of the hunchbacks was they got a hunch, hump on their back, they can't get pinned. That was left out of a, a creative room. The other one was uh, that WCW wanted to shave Ric Flair's hair, give him a gladiator outfit, and make him Spartacus. Wrestling fans who know Ric Flair know he's one of the most charismatic men in the world. They know that his trademark blonde bleached hair is part of his gimmick. And they know that in the, in the 90s he was at his peak. And they wanted to make him a Roman gladiator. And that was because WCW was being run by people who didn't have a clue about what professional wrestling was. And, and, and how, to, how to do it. See, WCW was bought by Ted Turner's Corporation. And... They wanted businessmen in charge, but they didn't have any wrestling guys in charge. And it's ironic that when they had wrestling guys in charge, that's when the product seemed at its best. Um, you had Bill Watts and then later Eric Bischoff, who wasn't technically a wrestling guy, but Eric, Bish Eric Bischoff, the type of person that he was, he knew just enough about business and marketing and just enough about wrestling to make WCW a success in the mid to late 90s, and we'll talk about that here in a little while. But they had guys like Jim Hurd, Kip Fry, who didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, and WCW is still stuck in the Southern wrestling style. Not to, you know, not, not, not to knock that. I know a lot of people love that stuff and I, and, and I like it too, but it wasn't mainstream. It was very, very regional style and the in-ring product was far better. I mean, you put Flair versus Steamboat against Hogan and Andre and you know which one's going to win. But the style itself didn't mesh to the mainstream because it was too legitimate. If that makes sense. People wanted a little bit of flavor. People wanted a little bit of flavor with their wrestling, as opposed to it being a legitimate sport. WWF at the time was too far, had too much flavor, and WCW didn't have enough. So that's why you know later on in the decade, when you know everybody had the right amount of charisma and working talent, and was able to get crowds you know emotional, that's when it did. But I mean you know. WCW and WWF were not doing well at that time. And not just those two, the NWA f effectively died during this period. Um, and what I mean by that is you had... The NWA's biggest promotion at the time was Jim Crockett Promotions on WCW. And the world champion was the NWA world champion, not necessarily the WCW champion. While WCW finally decided, you know what? We are big enough, we don't need you anymore. And pulled out of the NWA. The problem was Ric Flair was NWA World Champion. Now, also, during that time period, Ric Flair defected from the NWA to WWF. That was a huge deal. This is, it, it, I mean, it is a huge deal. It's like, um, you know, in, in wrestling terms, it was the equivalent of Jesus Christ con converting to to. to you know, to, to Islam, you know, um, I mean, it, it was that, it was that big, Ric Flair was seen as the, this legitimate athlete with charisma, and he could beat you up, and he could take your girlfriend, and then he was moving into the cartoon world of the WWF, even though the WWF had a more popular product, it was, it was huge, I mean, it, it was, it's like some guy leaving from Manchester City to on Manchester United, or, you know, Tottenham to Arsenal, you know, Saul Campbell, uh, for anyone paying attention, that's Saul Campbell, who won two Premier League titles and uh, a double. Um, <laughs> you know, just just in case somebody wonders what he did when he left Tottenham, uh, who are the biggest club in the world, not to win anything. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, Ric Flair joining WWF was a huge deal. He took the NWA World Championship with him, um, which the NWA tried to sue him for. But Ric Flair might not have been the NWA champion, but he owned the NWA belt, the big gold belt, which was synonymous with uh, the WCW Championship and later what the WWF called the World Heavyweight Championship. Um, and that really was one of the last nails in the NWA coffin, and we will get to um, another nail in that coffin here in a couple of minutes. But in the early 90s, uh, you've got, so the products are uncool, there's infighting, and then all of a sudden, bang, the scandals hit. Of course there are scandals. This is pro wrestling. Um, Vince McMahon and Titan Sports, which was the com which is basically the, the, the main company, uh, they were indicted on federal steroid charges. Um, basically put, uh, the FBI and the feds believed that Vince McMahon was distributing steroids to his wrestlers. And that was, 
that was very, very close. What people don't realize is how close that was to killing the WWF at the time, or at least definitely putting uh, Vince in jail. Um, but to combat that, he starts an aggressive drug program and fires anybody who fails, including the British Bulldog, who went along being back. And British Bulldog just came off one of the best matches of all time in the WWF. Uh, the Ultimate Warrior, who also had just come back. Um, and he started moving his product towards... I was supposed to say this. He started moving his product towards what they called the new generation, which was the small athletic guys, the ones who didn't look like they were completely and utterly roided up. His average height of a guy went from 6'5 to 6'2, went from like 287 to 235, you know, almost overnight. Um, just to kind of, you know, to, to present that image. Uh, Hulk Hogan, who had left the WWF in 1993 and was taking some time away, uh, he was basically a star witness for the prosecution. But unfortunately for the prosecution, his testimony kind of exonerated McMahon. Um, and then what really, really killed the case was there was a guy called Nails. Nails was a convict. His character was a convict. And in 1992, they had a pay dispute where Nails legitimately locked himself in Vince McMahon's office and tried to kill him. Uh, basically put Bret Hart and a couple of other guys, found Nails, choking the crap out of McMahon for real. And, you know, he's fired on the spot. But um, he admitted that he hated Vince McMahon. And he didn't want anything to do with him. And he hoped that he'd die and all that nonsense. And that killed the case. That killed it. You know, because he was so bitter. It just felt like it was it was bitter. So Vince gets away with that. But the company had just weathered a storm not long before that. Uh, ring attendant Tom Cole... Uh, he alleged that Terry Garvin and Pat Patterson had assaulted him sexually. Nobody really knows how this one went out because it was settled. But we do know that uh, all three men left the company. Now, Pat Patterson returned, especially considering he was Vince McMahon's right-hand man for the longest time. But, again, that was a huge, huge thing that, again, almost shut the company down. Almost shut down what pro wrestling was. So how did wrestling start to become cool so far we've had lame angles lame gimmicks uh lack of fan interest and scandals and the iconic uh the the iconic stuff that was your dad's wrestling for lack of a better term you know dead wwe launched monday night raw in 1993 and unusual for its time you gotta understand, Raw this week uh, will have a main event, and it will be a top guy versus a top guy, or a top gal versus a top gal. Right? Let's just pull something. It'll be say uh, Roman Reigns versus Samoa Joe. Right? Hypothetically, and I know it isn't. You know, don't don't at me on that one. But back in the nineties, back in the early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, it would usually be uh, Samoa Joe versus Davy Smith. And Davy Smith would get a few shots in and then spend the rest of the, his match getting the crap beat out of him. You know, basically that was called a jobber. Um, so what Raw did is it started putting competitive matches. Now, okay, let me rephrase that. Not competitive matches in the sense that, you know, you, you kind of... It wasn't main event v. main event or mid-card v. mid-card. But they would put, say, a top guy. Let's use today's, let's use today's names as an example. They would pick, say, Samoa Joe versus Heath Slater. And back then you didn't know. Now you know, but back then you didn't know. You could Slater cause an upset or whatever. So that that was unusual for its time, and that that was kind of a way to get interest back because you know, if you were if you're a, I'm a football fan as I mentioned, would you rather see a friendly match between uh, Arsenal and Barnet or a friendly match between Arsenal Arsenal and Tiverton? You know, answers on a postcard, please. Uh, <laughs> but um. And also, another thing that helped it was it came from an iconic venue in the Manhattan Center. Uh, that whole theater-looking thing. Beautiful, beautiful room. Um, no matter what you... I always find that the, the wrestling always looks better and feels better if it's in a beautiful room. Um, and the good thing about Raw is it's on TV right now. I mean, to this day. I mean, this is released on a Sunday. I guarantee you, tomorrow night, you turn on to USA Network, there will be three hours of Monday Night Raw. You know, it's, it's still there. It's still going strong, even though... the the quality of it can be considered going downhill. So while all this is happening, while all, you know, WWF is doing their thing, WCW is doing their thing, territories are effectively dead. And then during this time period between uh, 1991 and 1992, two promotions 
were formed and i think they deserve a mention and they don't one promotion in particular that i'm going to mention doesn't get the respect that it deserves uh in terms of you know what it meant for the wrestling business but the other promotion definitely gets you know everything that 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 it has uh we're going to talk about ecw eastern championship wrestling or extreme championship wrestling and how that got started was kind of it was a place that took a contemporary style of wrestling with old-timey logic so you know you had the good guys the bad guys but it had reasons behind you know behind the feuds reasons behind why these two guys want to beat the crap out of each other and then they went in there and tore the house down with athleticism and a moves and the move set as opposed to genuine old-fashioned style of doing it so the product itself was more contemporary and that attracted a whole bunch of guys who were young and hungry and wanted to make it you know wanted to break in and then also um guys who just didn't quite make it you know guys uh, at the time guys like cactus jack and you know th- that kind of thing they 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 just weren't quite there yet they, they either weren't quite there yet or they just hadn't they, they were never going to make it and that's how it got started it got a rabbit following and then morphed into this like uh, hardcore um kind of promotion and you know the fans edit up uh, I ended up. I thought it was a really, really good promotion, and uh, you know, I like the uh, I like the luchadors coming in for the first time. You know, you never really saw that on American wrestling, especially in British wrestling. Um, you didn't really see, you know, the luchadors. You didn't see the Japanese guys come in, and you didn't see these young, athletic American and Canadian wrestlers. You know, do do that much. But that's you know that that kind of uh, it was the hipster's choice, I guess you could say. Um, and the other promotion that came out around about that time was Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And that was an old-timey, old-fashioned style territory, but also promoted a contemporary style of doing things. Jim Cornette was the guy who ran it, and he said he wanted to do old things with new guys. You can recycle the angles, you can't recycle the talent. So, you know, he had working arrangements with WWF and WCW at the time, and it was a breeding ground for new talent. Um, I always wanted to know which of the two promotions had the best original roster because a lot of the guys bounced between the two of them before they made it up to the wwf or wcw so in one promotion you had taz tommy dreamer the sandman cactus jack in the other promotion you had kane chris jericho lance storm uh chris candido you know so which one of those two promotions had the better roster i mean it was really 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 hard to figure it out but i mean Cornet gave a lot of young guys a chance to to do what they did kind of like in ECW where Todd Golden and Paul Heyman did that and unlike ECW Smoky Mountain died a little bit before its time and it closed in 1995 but Jim Cornette already had a working uh, agreement with WWF at the time Uh, he'd already managed for a few years certain guys and he moved full-time to the WWF there were also a couple of smaller promotions that didn't quite make it there was the Universal Wrestling federation not the one run by bill watts but the one run by bill uh by herb abram excuse me uh he used a lot of second string talent guys who weren't main event guys in wwf or wcw but guys who could still work and still go in the ring uh they still they they just didn't have they didn't have the draw um they did use a good bunch of young talent, but unfortunately, the the quality of the matches w- was dreadful, and the quality of the promotion was absolutely disgusting. I mean, you know, it was it was horrible. Nobody nobody liked it. Nobody got it. And it closed in 1996 after Abram suffered a cocaine induced heart attack while chasing a hooker around with a baseball bat. I wish I was making that up, but multiple sources have verified this. Which, if you're gonna go, you know, you might as well go in a hotel room covered in baby oil and cocaine all over you. But uh, in the industry, basically, but mo- it, it's a depression in the industry. Money's tight. Most of these young promotions go to the wall, and it just it just doesn't work. So, what happens next? How does again? We're still kind of negative, and we're in 1993 to 1994. How is it that in two years' time, wrestling is the hottest form of entertainment in the United States? Well, starts with one man, a guy by the name of Eric Bischoff, who I mentioned earlier. Now, Eric Bischoff was a third-string announcer with WCW, um, ridiculed by the, the guys backstage. And he applies for a job after the guy running WCW, a guy by the name of Bill Watts, legendary promoter, legendary wrestler in his time. Uh, he's fired uh, after allegedly making racist remarks. Uh, I've not read the remarks. I, I, I can't bother to look it up because, you know, that'd be a whole other story for another day. But um, 
Bischoff kind of takes over. And WCW was was politically correct. Um, not in the way that, you know, people criticize political correctness these days. You know, it, it, it's ridiculous how people criticize it and how people take it so seriously. But um, th- this kind of political correctness was they wouldn't refer to a weapon as a foreign object. They'd refer to it as an international object. Obviously not understanding the definition of the word foreign in this case. Um, Cactus Jack, Mick Foley, told a story about how he was supposed to be bu- uh, a team called the Butchers... And uh, Sullivan Slaughterhouse, excuse me, Sullivan Slaughterhouse. And instead of coming out with dirt and blood all over the smock, they were freshly laundered because WCW didn't allow dirt or anything that looked like blood. So, you know. So the first thing that he does is he needs to think about how to compete with the WWF. Because make no mistake about it, while WCW had the better product in terms of in-ring, WWF was still king. I mean, WWF was 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 still the product. It, it really was. It still had the biggest names. Yes, Hulk Hogan wasn't wrestling at the time, but he he if he's not there, you have to build a new star. WWF, you know, they they kind of they started bringing about a new bunch of guys, and they they were moderately successful in terms of you ask the fans and they remember them fondly. But business didn't pick up, houses didn't pick up, and the match quality only picked up slightly. And so what did Eric Bischoff do? He signed Hulk Hogan. He took Mr. Wrestling away from the wrestling company. And everybody knew who Hulk Hogan was. And that was just a start. He brought along Randy Savage, Bobby Heenan, Mean Gene Oakland, Roddy Piper. And Vince, to his credit, Vince McMahon, decided to you know, keep his his product going, use some young stars, which, ironically, he did a few years later. But, I mean, after all these guys left, he basically built the WWF around Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Shawn Waltman. And, you know, it was just, yeah, I mean, it, th- that was the start of the new generation. But, during this time, the last vestige of the NWA is killed off. The NWA, at this point is a shadow of its former self, and that's important right now, because, you know, WWF is doing their thing, WCW is doing their thing, and the NWA needs a big promotion, so it signs up with Eastern Championship Wrestling, and they host the NWA uh, tournament, and it's an eight-man tournament, one night, and it is won by Shane Douglas, Shane Douglas is a guy who kind of epitomized ECW, Uh, like I mentioned earlier, he's a guy who never quite fulfilled his potential, and was, but was perfect for ECW. He's a top guy in ECW, but never quite made it to the same level of superstardom in WWF or WCW. But uh, what Douglas does is he wins. And he gets the belt, and he gets the mic, and he starts talking about all these legendary champions. And how they can all kiss his ass. And throws the NWA World Championship, the symbol of professional wrestling champions, to the ground. Like, he might as well have spat on it as, as, as it hit the, hit the ring. Um, he picks up the, the Eastern Championship Wrestling belt and declares himself the ECW World Champion. And he says that he doesn't want to be uh, a champion of a dead promotion and that he decided that he was going to take Eastern Championship Wrestling to the extreme. And at that point, ECW closes its doors and reopens its doors the next day changing from Eastern Championship Wrestling to Extreme Championship Wrestling. And that's the ECW that we know of today. Because of that, NWA kind of slinks out of the spotlight. They do go run into uh, Smoky Mountain, and Jim Cornette does welcome them with open arms, because Jim Cornette, uh, at that time, was a big believer in the NWA. And, you know, the NWA was professional wrestling for the longest time, especially when he grew up in the business. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know what it what it is but so ecw is now edgy and cool only on a local area but still edgy and cool and it's got a little bit of a buzz about it and what does the wwf do well as i mentioned they put bret hart up there then Shawn michaels kevin nash scott hall owen hart then it had lex luger the undertaker yokozuna sean waltman bob holly jeff jarrett they take the reins and kind of become the foundation of what the WWF will become in its later years, but unfortunately, they don't draw any money. Um, between 1994 and 1996, I mean, 
it was just horrible. The three major world champions that were running the things, Bret Hart, Kevin Nash, and Shawn Michaels, just didn't draw money. And it got to a lot of them. But was was it because that they couldn't draw? I mean, look, I've made this argument before, right? Kevin Nash's Diesel is one of the lowest drawn WWF champions in history. But his heel, he was, he was, he was a bad guy. Then he became a good guy. He became the world champion, and then all of a sudden, you've got to ex- believe that he is vulnerable, and his vulnerabilities in the likes of Bob Backlund, Jim Neidhart, <sighs> Mabel, Tatanka, King Kong Bundy, th- those guys weren't taken seriously as legitimate challengers. But then if he would stay a bad guy, he would have fought Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, The Undertaker, Scott Hall, Lex Luger, the British Bulldog. You know, so, I mean, it just, they made bad decision after bad decision. Now, some people say putting the belt on Nash was a bad decision in the first place, and that's a different story for a different day. But also, WWF decided that they were going to, that everybody needed a job-based wrestling character. You had a trash man, a hog farmer, hockey player, a plumber, a goddamn magician. A magician, a magician, magician, not even a good magician, an illusion, a a magician, yeah, it was so bad that his debut, his only match on TV was so quiet, you could practically hear the crowd go, what the heck is this, you know, so the fans start rejecting the product, you know, they, they really did, and, you know, it's just, so, I mean, you know, WWF at the time, it was not utopia, I mean, you know, yes, you had uh, these guys like Nash who weren't drawn. And again, as I mentioned, his his quality of opponents as a bad guy weren't legitimate threats. You could not take them seriously as world champions. Then he suffered a major elbow injury that, by his own admission, he just taped up and, and carried on. He needed a nine-month recovery period. That's the injury that, as of right now, Dean Ambrose has been out with. You know, and plus the locker room is split is completely and utterly split. Basically put, there were three major political groups forming backstage in the WWF at the time. You had the clique, which was Shawn Michaels, Shawn Waltman, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Triple H. You had the BSK, which was The Undertaker, Karma, Fatu, Yokozuna, Savio Vega, and the Godwins. And then you had the Hart Foundation, which was Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Davey Boy Smith, Jim Neidhart, Brian Pillman. And then you had guys who were kind of in their own path, but would be loosely aligned with these gangs, but never quite, you know, make it. So that's what WWF is doing. What was WCW doing at this time? Well, an infamous distribution meeting led to what would begin the Monday Night Wars. Um, Eric Bischoff was in a meeting with Ted Turner and was asked how to compete with WWF. Bischoff claims that he jokingly said a live show on Monday night would be a good start, and he gets two hours on TNN, Turner's flagship network. So what does WCW do? Well, they do the same thing that WWF was doing. They went cartoony. They went over the top. They went in a place that nobody really expected them to go. And they launched Monday Nitro from the Mall of America. Shopping mall. Not an arena. Not a big, fancy event. Mall of America. You had the Dungeon of Doom. You had, you know, and and just... Hulk Hogan being Hulk Hogan, brother. You know, it, it looked like some cheap knockoff of the WWF in the 1980s. The fans, the, the wrestlers themselves, is it's gimmicky and it's childish and everybody hates it. And it looks like it's going to be a dud until Lex Luger from the WWF shows up. Lex Luger was out of contract with the WWF. He had, had a verbal agreement, but signed with WCW. Uh, he said that he wanted to, you know, carry on his career. He felt that he was gypped out of championship opportunities and, you know, that folks were getting opportunities before he was and, you know, all ego stuff. And that was kind of the first shot for Monday night, for the Monday Night Wars. And the problem with that, though, is WCW then started bringing in the names. Now, don't get me wrong, names are important. You need, I mean, like, again, I'm going to go with the football analogy again. Arsenal signed uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang this January. That's a great signing. But they also have some good young players too, and you combine them together, and boom, that's it. That's what takes it to the stratosphere. Unfortunately, WCW didn't see it that way and just started hiring the names. They hired Hogan, Savage, Piper, DBRC, um, you know, all these guys who had name value in the WWF. 
WCW. And because of that, they lost. They lost their young, up-and-coming talent. I'm about to read you five names off my notes right here. If these guys had stayed with WCW and the company was built around them, the WWF wouldn't have stood a chance. You had Mick Foley, Brian Pillman, and Steve Austin between 1994 and 1995 leave for ECW. Then you had Jean-Paul Levesque and Dustin Rhodes. They left for the WWF. Those names might not sound familiar to you, but if I was to say Triple H and Goldust, you'd know exactly who I'm talking about. And by the time 1996 had rolled around, Pillman, Foley, and Austin would also be in the WWF. And who do you think Vince McMahon built his company around? He built it around Mankind versus The Undertaker. He built it around Steve Austin versus The Hearts. He built it around Triple H versus The Rock. He built all these things from these new talents that he got in. And let his old ones go. Because he knew in time that these new young kids that he'd got would take it to the next level. Which is part of the reason why the new generation had failed. Because they weren't new guys. They were just older guys now coming up through the ranks. I mean, Bret Hart was a great wrestler. Bret Hart was, is one of my favorite of all time. Shawn Michaels, too. But you only got to see them get beat so many times to bigger, stronger people. And especially when those bigger and stronger people are on WCW now... To carry the company it just it, it didn't work you know so Vince got these new guys and started building the WWF around that and business started to pick up for them and the Monday Night Wars had begun and that was it you know that's what the spark that got wrestling back to being cool again now we're gonna leave it right there because we are gonna leave it right there there is so much to talk about next week uh, next week we will talk about the opening t- the opening shots of the Monday Night Wars stuff like Nation Hall leaving, stuff like the Pillman's Got a Gun, stuff like ECW almost killed a 17-year-old boy. Legitimately, in the ring. Yeah. See, now we're getting juicy. This is kind of the foundation. This is the level that I'm talking about. Next week, we're going to go into the juicy stuff. And next week's show is going to be really, really good. So, guys, stay tuned. We've got a heck of a lot more to come. Um, And talking of wrestling in the early 90s, let's look at a moment that was so bad it was awful. Destination Daytona, Florida. World Championship Wrestling's fans and finest athletes are assembled at the Ocean Center for what looks to be a fantastic night of professional wrestling, live on TBS. Today, folks, there are no edits, and this is as awesome as it gets. And here we have fan favorites Sting and Davey Boy Smith. They are scheduled for announcement for their upcoming bout at Fall Brawl. When their presumed opponents, Sid and the tag team known as Harlem Heat, Sting announces the imminent debut of the Shockmaster. And here comes the man now, breaking through the wall and... Oh dear. Um... Well, it seems that the Shockmaster, standing at six foot tall and a weight of over 350 pounds, smashed through the top half of the wall, only for his legs not to go through. Dressed in a leather and fur vest and a painted Stormtrooper helmet, which incidentally did fall off his head, the Shockmaster is a dud. A pure, pure dud. What's worse is that his voice did not match his gestures. After pointing and gesturing for what seemed like, well, an hour, his voice started to come through the public address system. A loud, growling man, and threatened somebody called... Stid. <clears throat> Performers Davy Boy Smith and interviewer Ric Flair, as well as Sid himself, all broke character as the event unfolded. Now we know the following. In rehearsal, the wall did indeed break as intended. The promoter of the event, James Crockett Jr., allegedly asked that a 2x4 was affixed to the bottom half of the wall. Another wrestler, Ole Anderson, providing the voice off-screen, was so taken aback by the mistake, he was laughing so hard that he had to compose himself before carrying on his threatening promo. And Mr. Shockmaster, as he ran into the wall, well, he didn't see the 2x4, and well... After several re-attempts at returning to World Championship Wrestling, the Shockmaster, now known as Uncle Fred, left quietly, leaving the Shockmaster well behind him. The incident is now considered one of the most unintentionally funny moments in professional wrestling and live entertainment. 
So yeah, as I mentioned at the start of the show, Titus O'Neil and the Shockmaster one-on-one for the worst possible humiliating moment to happen on live TV. Uh, this week, I asked on social media question, is professional wrestling the best of child of sport and entertainment? Uh, I got a lot of responses, and it's a landslide resounding yes. 74% of you think that pro wrestling is the best of child of sport and entertainment. Yeah, that's kind of... Yeah, I agree with that. I completely, utterly, 100% agree with that sentiment, and, you know, it's just... It's a shame, really, because the guys who work in pro wrestling, they work hard, they are, you know, they are tough, they are, you know, it just, it, 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 it's a shame that people take, take their work on a mainstream level so not serious, especially because it's not legitimate competition. But, you know, 74% of you guys, that's, that's, that's a wrap, that's exactly what it is. Next week, we want to ask the question, who was your favorite pro wrestler of the 90s? Yeah, I'll have a blog also out next week talking about my nine favorite professional wrestlers of all time. And one of them is from the 90s. The guy who wins the big enchilada. It is not who you think it is. Especially people who know my love of this this thing, who it might be. It's not who you think it is. You know, so that's that's what it is. Uh, guys, social media. If you're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, look up Because Maybe Podcast. Look up our YouTube page, our blog, and everything like that. Um, if you guys have been hearing little giggles in the background, I have a little one with me. Um, she is our trivia girl, who will be debuting next week. And, yeah, it'll be good. We're about to actually uh, record that for the next couple of days. Uh, record the whole episode for next week in the next couple of days. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, next week's show, by the way, uh, I'm going to be flying solo yet again. And we're going to be looking at the middle of the 90s, the mid-90s, between, like, 96 through 97. Um, I know that's a shorter period compared to what we just looked at, but a lot of things were in that two-year period. A lot of things that uh, I didn't speak about this week that I will speak about next week. And, you know, some interesting times, the start of the Attitude Era, the start of, uh, you know, the, the real the real drawn of the lines in the Monday Night Wars, and so on and so forth. And I'm looking forward to doing it too. Um, you know, again, this is a closet hobby of mine, closet you know, closet fandom. Some days I love this stuff, some days I think it's the worst thing that's ever been invented in terms of entertainment, but, you know, whatever. Um, but, yeah, this, this middle decade is really what made pro wrestling in the 90s, or at least laid all the foundations that was to come, and especially got out the big stars. So, until then... You guys have a fantastic week. Look for us on our social media pages. Look for us everywhere. And we are back. It's good to be back, guys. Thank you. He fell on his ass. He fell flat on his fucking ass.